Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome back to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Allie here along with my co-host Becky. Hi everyone. And we are, you are joining us today on episode 82 and we are talking all about dairy. This topic has been long overdue and we'll be covering the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as which types of dairy, if any, should be consumed for health supporting benefits. Yes, so this is a question we get a lot and I know that the grounds are are a little bit mixed in terms of practitioners out there supporting pro-dairy and anti-dairy and myself, Personally, it's taken me a long time to come to terms with dairy after being vegan for so long, um, and my body doesn't do well with certain types of dairy. So remembering back, like the vegan arguments of, oh, it's it's blood and pus in the milk and all of that nastiness. Um, So I think we'll be debunking a little bit of that stuff out there too, and just removing some of the fear around dairy and speaking to whether it works for your body or not. For sure. And from me being from Wisconsin, of course, I have a lot of (laughs) ingrained pro-dairy response, but we'll also be talking about some of the rules of insulin resistance, how it can influence a high-fat, low-carb diet, like a ketogenic diet, uh, the role on our sexual hormones, and so much more. All of the things dairy. I have to ask Allie, do you have a cheese hat? <laughs> One of those like cheese head things, you know? Oh, well, Is that I a Wisconsin did. thing? Absolutely. Green Bay <laughs> <Okay>. Packers. <laughs> you know, there was some like incident that like a cheese head saved someone's life from some form of an accident at some point. So yeah. Well, there you go. Let's just end the episode right there. Dairy can save your life. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should be our icon for promotion, me wearing a cheese head. That's awesome. Let's see if we can track one down. I love it. Okay. So before we get into today's topic, I want to give a little update of what's going on in your world. So I know at Paleo FX this past weekend, we met a ton of amazing people. We handed out some book promo kits, and I know you'll be doing a lot of guest interviews coming up. So we'll be sure to let everyone know once those are scheduled. Yes, it was an awesome weekend. I'm a little bit shot, (laughs) but doing my turmeric shooter this morning, getting back on it, and a lot of talking. I'm surprised I have my voice (laughs) this morning, but um, we just had a lot of great collaboration with amazing people, and now we transition focus on to some uh, promotion and anti-anxiety diet book lectures in Houston at the Young Center and Kelsey Siebel Hospital System. And then really setting focus on big event of KetoCon in June. So if you guys missed us at Paleo FX, be sure to get your link. We'll send a link in the um, notes of today's show for KetoCon. It's going to be coming up in June. And I will be lecturing all about the anti-anxiety diet there. And we will be there along Becky, I, and our husbands 
with all of the Naturally Nourished supplement line and the Naturally Nourished cookbook, and hopefully the first available copies of the anti-anxiety diet books. I will be there for free hugs, book signings, and all of the things. So be sure to get your tickets and learn about the advances of the ketogenic diet and find also the cool thing with paleo effects that we also realized was it's a great way to really kind of feel your fit in your tribe because a lot of times when you're doing a specific therapeutic diet you can feel super socially isolated so what we're really excited about is this kind of team collaboration and people feeling really strong in their investments that they're making into their body and into their day-to-day diet yes so many exciting things. And then we also have uh, our virtual ketosis program. Spots are filling up. And by the time this episode goes live, that will be launching two weeks from now. Um, so yes. May 15th is our start date. So if you haven't purchased your spot yet, get in there and get on it. Yes. Our ketosis program is a fantastic opportunity for you to advance your current ketogenic diet or tip your toe into the pool of all things ketosis. Literally on any end of the spectrum of whether you are a novice or a pro, you will be able to learn information and apply it to customizing your fat adapted lifestyle. Because we talk about things like the HPA access and have a stress assessment incorporated with the program. We talk about leaky gut and inflammation There are therapeutic food goals, so it's way beyond macros and mastering carbs, protein, and fat. In our virtual ketosis program, we talk about antioxidants, micronutrients of specific focus, and really how to heal your body from the root, how to address imbalances, and use a fat-fueled lifestyle to create a synergistic catapult to feeling amazing in your body again. So please do join us, and it's a fantastic value at $199 for the 12-week program, which incorporates six live classes with me. You also get the archives if you had to miss it or you need to rewatch it because it can be kind of high-powered hose, Um, and you get, I think it's over 30 uh, supplemental uh, materials as far as handouts and worksheets that can all be customized through your learning process. And then there's, of course, access in our private Facebook group that both Becky and I moderate actively on the daily. Yes, I love being a part of the, especially in the beginning when we get a whole new tribe of keto warriors. I love being part of the energy and buzz and just supporting people with food as medicine to use fat as fuel. Um, So in our program, we've seen awesome results in the past couple of virtual go-arounds. We've seen weight loss of 50 plus pounds, reduction of lab markers like A1C and fasting insulin, as well as positive shifts in lipid panels. We've seen medication reductions. We've seen hormonal balance. Um, A lot of speak of less food cravings and just more freedom around food. So really, really awesome results of this program. So jump on in there and grab your spot. Yes. And then before we get started on all things dairy, the final thing I want to do is thank you guys uh, for the iTunes reviews. As always, this is the best way for you podcast listeners to give us a little bit of return on investment of our time and energy for putting out this free content 
for you all. So every time you take the moment to give us a five-star review and put a couple sentences with that, that always helps to score a little bit stronger. It means a lot to help us to get the word out. So I just want to read a couple of our most recent reviews. Uh, these came in in March when we saved these. So hopefully there's even some fresh ones now through the month of April. But let's see here. I got one that says, love the NN podcast. Uh, by 123SSC. And it says, every time I listen to a Naturally Nourished podcast, I learn something new that will benefit my health. Allie Miller is amazing. Her wealth of knowledge and her ability to communicate that knowledge in normal, air quotes, language <laughs> is impressive. <laughs> I love Allie's positive approach to changing negative health issues. Thank you, Allie Miller and Becky, too. Yeah. And then I'll read one more, um, one uh, by uh, Amy Beard, 2007. It says, love the science as the subject. With so many podcasts out there that are simply based on a, an opinion, it is refreshing to listen to the real science-based nutrition that is cutting edge and not based on the standard American diet. I never miss an episode. Great job, ladies. So thank you so much, Miss Amy, as well. Um, so you guys, if you can take a moment, maybe pause right now and go do it. <laughs> um, but this is the best way really to spread food as medicine to the masses. It helps with algorithm scores. And with that being said, if you've already reviewed the Naturally Nourished podcast on iTunes, much gratitude. And if you could take a moment and leave us also a five-star review on the Naturally Nourished Food is Medicine for Optimal Health cookbook and or the upcoming anti-anxiety diet book. If you have a copy and you're enjoying it, please give us some feedback. Best way to spread the word. Yes. That just warms my heart to hear these. And those reviews really do help us get seen by more people on a day-to-day -day basis. It bumps up our rating on iTunes, especially. Um, so please, 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 if you're enjoying our work that we're putting out there, just take a moment and run over, write a five-star review, couple of sentences, doesn't need to be, you know, an essay, but tell us what you love um, and share with friends as well. Yes, for sure. Okay, awesome. So let's jump into our topic. And I know this is a constant question in our clinic and in our virtual ketosis program. And a lot of people wonder if they pull dairy out, if it will shift them out of a stall or lack of progress with their keto diet. Yes, and I think this is a big buzzworthy topic in the keto community, especially because it can become very dairy-centric. A lot of people find keto post-paleo. You know, uh, I think that the first kind of clean eating is usually like a Whole30 or a paleo-type diet approach. And then as they go keto, they start to bring dairy, like the floodgates <laughs> go down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's fat bombs and full-fat cream, heavy whipping cream and cheese as a snack. And cheese becomes very centric in a lot of dishes uh, as you remove starchy vegetables and fruits. So I think that that's where we can see a dynamic change in the diet. And, and that's one of those kind of modifiable variables for sure of was this the thing that created benefit or negative influence in my health? And um, definitely, I think in that particular community, it's a high, high intake food. Yes. Like... I've seen pictures of people's stuff on Instagram with like four ounces of cheese on a plate and 
just to be clear, we don't necessarily recommend that. Um, right. So <laughs> I think before we get into the reasons why dairy might interfere with metabolic processes and disease states, let's go ahead and start with the positives because there definitely are some redeeming factors. Oh, for sure. Yes. So as I mentioned, you know, I have a little bit of a sweet spot <laughs> for dairy and in all of my personal inflammatory food panels that I've done and leaky gut work, I have not been someone that has had reactivity, unlike you, Becky, not to call you out, but I know you mentioned oh. that at the beginning. <laughs> so we also have personal different relationships with how yes. we feel, and that's important to be able to share. And like our podcast review said, we always want to start with the science first, and then you know, you as an individual do have to choose your own adventure, and you may look to some scientific data on how your body responds as well. But let's start with the beauty, the positives of dairy. So dairy in general can really provide a very convenient way to get probiotics into the diet and also a convenient, um, easy form of protein. So dairy does have a complete protein and in varied forms, especially when we're looking at like a strained uh, yogurt, like a Greek yogurt, which is more concentrated in amino acids or a non-denatured grass-fed whey. This is going to be a really rich form of amino acids that are very bioavailable to support lean body mass. And in general, my, my perspective on dairy is very similar to my perspective on all foods in the sense that when it's consumed in its whole form, it can be seen as a beneficial food in the body. Yes, I think that is so key to emphasize that we're talking about whole food forms. So let's go ahead and define for listeners what an unadulterated whole form of dairy would look like. Yes. So the, the most kind of, the first thing that comes to mind is raw, you know, cream at the top, non-homogenized milk, right? Like that's the first, <laughs> that's what's being pulled out in, in the lactation process. And that's what dairy is. So it is raw milk. And in that composition, you know, we've talked so much about the benefits of breast milk um, in our breastfeeding episode. And a lot of that ties back to the role on immunoglobulin production and the role of that on the immune system and also on the role of probiotics and compounds that help to support healthy gut bacteria. So raw milk is rich form of immunoglobulin compounds, including PRP, which are proline-rich polypeptides. And uh, proline is the particular amino acid that is responsible for the synthesis of proteins. So raw milk can be a really great tool for supporting lean body mass and also growth and development. So for kiddos that are in a developmental stage, this is why, of course, breast milk is always best because we are going to get this high amount of immunoglobulins that help to defend their immune system and also the proline in the form of PRP, which supports growth, synthesis, and development. Furthermore, raw milk also is going to have, we talked about in the breast milk episode, it's called HMO, which are human milk oligosaccharides. Well, you don't get HMOs in uh, cow's dairy, but you do get in the raw milk form oligosaccharides, which are basically fermentable long chain carbohydrates. And those are provided in hand with probacteria if it's not pasteurized. 
So you're going to get this natural occurring probiotic, and then you might even get more so if that dairy is further cultured. Um, and it's also going to be provided in the natural presence of prebiotic natural milk sugars that help to keep pathogens out on a defense mechanism and help to support and thrive the good gut bacteria. So just in one particular case of concern, asthma, for instance, we see a lot of research studies that show that children who drink raw milk are about 50% less likely to develop allergies. This is partial also because they're getting pollen from the grass and the ranging cattle um, that are then producing the milk. So they're getting some of those antigens to teach their immune system to be less reactive to seasonal allergens. Um, and they're also getting these active immunoglobulins and the probiotic structure. And so we've seen 50% less uh, risk of allergies and 41% less likely to develop asthma when compared to children who don't. Um, and, and so there was also a study done by the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and they involved 8,000 kiddos with various diets. And the conclusion was made that by drinking raw milk, they could enhance their natural immunizing effects. So definitely this immunoglobulin and bacteria connection is positive to help to inoculate the gut and also support our barrier system, both on a dermatological and respiratory system beyond digestive. So awesome. So I know for all of the reasons that you just said, we're doing a lot more colostrum as a supplement, especially with our leaky gut population clinically. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, if you can't have access to raw milk um, and if you're looking for a, a concentrated form, colostrum is a great thing to consider. Um, and then colostrum also beyond the raw milk would not have the lactose and the casein. So it's going to have a little bit different of an inflammatory profile, but I'll kind of shelf that. But basically colostrum can be a clean, pure form of these immunoglobulin supporters. So we have found that actually bovine colostrum, so colostrum from cow milk, is actually 80, I'm sorry, 40 times richer in the immune factors than human colostrum, um, and it is biologically transferable to humans. So you're getting these PRP compounds as well as active IgG compounds and the whole gamut of your immunoglobulins. So your Ig, IgA, IgM, IgE, and IgG. And basically, immunoglobulins are what helps to build your surveillance system or your immune system. So often when we're looking at leaky gut, we see a low secretory IgA. And what that means is that the gut lining and the mucosal lining in that individual is low or suboptimal. So colostrum is one of the best ways to bump up that IgA and support that barrier of defense and upregulate the production of immunoglobulins to start. Um, and then beyond that, colostrum also provides a good source of protein, uh, growth factors, as I prior mentioned, and then vitamins and minerals to help with growth and vitality. So cool. And I've definitely seen really good outcomes in the patients that I've used this in so far. So we'll link a supplement that we typically recommend in the show notes for sure. Um, I want to circle back and just address uh, a little bit of the raw milk controversy and talk about what about what to do for states that don't have at least legal access to raw milk. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot of fear mongering, a lot 
Um, I'm never scared to tip my toe in, in controversy. I was going to be like, I shouldn't. Okay. I will. I will. Um, <laughs> I'm not funded by the, the, the DFA, the Dairy Farmers Association or Dairy Farmers of America. Um, there is a lot of financial interest in there. And the issue is that to have raw milk legally available, that would put a lot of these large animal farming uh, dairy producers out of business because they're making dirty milk. That's the reality. So when you are milking animals that are living in their feces, you're going to need to pasteurize that milk. <laughs> when you're over milking animals and creating blood and pus, I mean, we talked about, again, a lot of this is going back to some of the concepts in our breastfeeding because it is, it's lactation. The same thing, mastitis occurs in cows and, and people, right? And so if you're over milking and you're not supporting the, the nipple with beneficial compounds like salves, and um, I know that a lot of raw dairy farms and raw goat farms use, for instance, like calendula compresses um, on the, the teat, if you will, um, that's going to protect protect against cracking and that's going to protect against blood and pus, right? So in the raw milk world, there is so much more proactive stance in managing bacteria state and managing the health of the animal. Um, Dr. Ted Beals did a lot of studies on actually reports from the CDC and um, there are reports of 48 million foodborne illnesses per year. Of these 48 million foodborne illnesses, only about 42, that is 0.0005%, <laughs> that's crazy, are tied to the consumption of fresh, raw, unpasteurized milk. Um, you are much more prone towards foodborne illness with spinach, um, which is not, you know, broad spectrum managed, um, or absolutely things like uh, oysters and other raw seafood um, than you are in raw milk, which is very regulated and can be very regulated by the producer itself. So that's kind of the first thing I would say is just, you know, be mindful that the risk association is very associated with the quality. And there's a lot of fear mongering because low quality entities want to be able to put their product on the market and put their stamp to make you feel safe. Um, and so I think that that hopefully answers that. Um, so the best alternative, if you can't access, well, first off, some of you may at your farmer's markets be able to find raw milk available for pet consumption. Ah, so, that's yeah. an interesting loophole. Yep, yep. Um, and hopefully some states mandate that they dye it blue, which is just sad um, because, you know, who wants synthetic food coloring? Ugh. But that's something you can ask from your farmers. And most of the time that's a loophole where you can buy it for pet consumption, but not for quote unquote human consumption. And then when you're in your own home, you can do what you choose to do. And share um, it with your pet. Yeah, you can, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, the other, the next best thing is uh, you can get raw milk legally across any state in the country in the form of raw aged cheeses. So we'll talk a little bit about diff different forms and things. Um, but the next best thing in a liquid dairy would be non-homogenized, low heat pasteurized um, from a local pasture raised farm. And, um, you know, so if they're grass fed, grass finished cows, and it's non-homogenized, low heat pasteurized or low heat processed, that's going to be your next best thing. Let's talk a little bit about what the homogenization process is and why it's actually done. 
Yeah. So homogenization changes the texture um, and the viscosity of milk. Um, and that's by basically pushing the milk through high pressure under these screens. Um, so it's both going to be heated and then vigorously kind of pounded through these tiny holes. And that breaks down the fat molecules so that the cream doesn't come to the top. Um, so it's creating homogenization, meaning one texture. So it's creating one viscosity, one texture, allowing the fat to stay, stay suspended in the rest of the liquid um, and resisting that separation. Now, the con of that is you're creating oxidative damage to fat globulins. So, I mean, when you're pushing something and creating tiny particles from what was a natural occurring particle, you're messing with that fatty acid structure, and that's going to create oxidative damage, which is going to create free radicals and less of the protective antioxidants. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, best place to start would definitely be your farmer's market to find the low heat pasteurized options. I know in Houston, we have milking. That's a great option that's sold pretty widely in grocery stores, but depending on where you're at, there's definitely an option uh, yeah. that would at least be low heat pasteurized. And you know, the pasteurization, well, the homogenization that, that spraying through the screens is really done to make the uh, shelf life longer, of course. And also it helps in the processing of segregating whole milk into 2% and skim. Um, and so, you know, whole milk is about 3.5% fat um, composition and then there's 2% otherwise known as reduced fat milk, 1% and skim. And so it also helps the large scale dairy producers to segregate their, their dairy and to deal with a varied product and make it all homogenous, right? So they can use you know, different forms um, and different quality, different seasonal and, and make it all look like one consistent product. Oh, it's a processing That, that makes so much sense. Okay, um, so let's, circle back and talk about some of the other benefits of dairy, some of the other nutrients found beyond just the immune supporting compounds. Sure. So I, I mentioned a little bit the fact that it's also a great form of protein. So the amino acids are very bioavailable. In fact, the branch chain amino acids from the dairy protein are the best seen in research for bioavailability or absorption in the intestines and um, to be used as uh, muscle repair in the branch chain amino acid structure. So this in turn helps with skeletal muscle mass, which in turn helps with increasing our basal metabolic rate, which is where we see a lot of beneficial research about dairy helping to burn body fat. Um, and then beyond that, beyond the amino acids, there's actually a fatty acid compound called CLAs. So this is where we use in our keto coffee in our virtual program, generally a blend of MCT from the coconut oil in the full food form, and then the CLAs in the full food form from grass-fed butter or ghee. So conjugated linoleic acids um, are a type of fatty acid that are significantly higher in grass-fed cows. Um, so when they're eating the grasses, they're turning that um, linoleic acid into this CLA compound. This can help to increase lean body mass further. It's been shown in research to support the burning of body fat. Um, we also see in research studies that women that have consumed higher amounts of CLAs have lower breast cancer rates. So there's a cancer protective and tumor anti-tumorigenic influence of CLAs that we've seen in research. Um, we've also seen 
lower risk for colon and prostate cancer with higher CLAs. Um, and then beyond that, we've seen a decrease in cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and benefits with osteoporosis as well as seasonal allergies. So these particular types of fatty acids, again, are higher in the grass-fed, which is one of the big pushes for grass-fed dairy. Beyond the amino acids and the CLAs, there are also a rich form of fat-soluble nutrients. So our vitamins A, D, and K, um, one of the most bioavailable food forms of these compounds. Again, you're only going to get the vitamin D if those cows are outside, exposed to sun, eating grasses, um, and definitely more A and K as well. In fact, when you see that butter becoming more of like a deeper gold and yellow hue, which you see in like the Kerrygold um, or the organic valley grass-fed butter, and especially you'll see like springtime butter if you're buying locally from your farmer's market or even your milk will shift colors. The more carotenoids, that beta carotene that they get, um, that vitamin A um, definitely is seen in a more creamy rich color um, based on the season. And um, we see that these fat soluble vitamins are so supportive for the brain and the nervous system. So very crucial for development in cognitive function, focus, attention. Um, and then we do see support also, especially like with the vitamin K and vitamin D in bone density and sexual hormone balance. Um, but all of these nutrients do significantly decrease following pasteurization. Mm, so interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then let's speak to calcium as well, because I think that's the, the most kind of known nutrient yeah. found in Yeah. So minerals are great also in dairy. So, you know, there's going to be calcium as well as magnesium and potassium. Um, and we're getting a pretty rich form of all of these, not super rich in magnesium, but definitely rich in calcium and potassium. Um, and these are definitely vital for our cellular function, play a big role with bone building density. Um, they play a huge role also even with detoxification and heart health and our muscle function, contraction and release. Um, and we do find that those three minerals, the calcium, magnesium, and potassium, tend to be lower in um, a lot of children and adults that don't have um, dairy as a source in their diet and or especially paired when they have a high sodium intake, like a very processed uh, you know, diet, more in like a food desert where they're not eating fresh foods. Okay, awesome. And then other benefits of dairy, I know healthy skin, hair, and nails, which we're going to talk about more in next episode. What else? Yeah, so we can see enhanced nutritional absorption, um, especially because, again, you're getting bioavailable forms of some, of some of these nutrients. We're seeing absolutely, like I mentioned, the immune system support and growth and development support. Uh, within that, we see reduced allergies and asthma. And again, that's typically speaking to those that have some non-denatured immunoglobulins. So even the low heat processed dairy would still provide us some of that or the use of the colostrum. Um, and then of course, yes, the increased bone density as well as neurological support, weight loss, and you actually can see improved digestive health when you take this qualitative dairy form and culture it. So, you know, that's the next piece of this puzzle is turning this raw milk or non-homogenized dairy into kefir, yogurt, and cultured forms. Awesome. So in defense of dairy, we'd be recommending things like raw milk or the non-homogenized low heat colostrum. And then in terms of other food forms, we'd be looking at cultured yogurts, kefirs, 
aged cheeses. And just to be clear, it would be the full fat forms of these, right? Absolutely. So full fat forms of all of these. Yes. And also to be clear, you know, on the form of non-homogenized low-heat milk, I would use that more as a um, kind of condiment. I'm not a fan, even though I am from Wisconsin, of drinking an 8 to 12 ounce Mm. glass of milk every day (laughs) or with every meal, two to three cups of milk a day. Um, That's definitely not in the recommendation. This is used really as like a complement. So we're talking about like two ounces and using this incorporated with other foods or again, culturing it and then maybe consuming like six ounces of a yogurt or a kefir. Um, And then on top of that, I would also add in ghee, grass-fed butter, and then grass-fed whey. So ghee and grass-fed butter are also rich in butyrate, which is a compound that also has some anti-cancer support beyond the CLAs that we've discussed. Uh, Butyrate is uh, actually a byproduct of short-chain fatty acids, so it's made in the colon. It's a great source of energy and definitely shown to be protective against colon cancer, and it can help to support balanced gut bacteria. So ghee and grass-fed butter is one of the best ways to ramp up your butyrate while you're working with a gut bacteria cleanse or gut bacteria shifts in the body. And then um, when grass-fed butter is converted into ghee, that clarification um, basically strains and removes the casein and the lactose, which are two of the more inflammatory or irritating compounds in dairy, which we'll speak to in a moment. Awesome. So, and then when we're referring to to whey protein, we're looking at our grass-fed, the naturally nourished grass-fed whey protein, correct? Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure there are some other ones out there, but yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, you don't want to just look for the term grass-fed whey. You want to make sure that it is non-denatured. That is the language you're looking for. And what that means is that it was not exposed to high heat. It was not um, isolated. We'll talk about the issue with isolates and whey protein isolate. Definitely something I would never recommend. Um, So non-denatured means that all of its structure has not been adulterated. It still is in its natural occurring form. And when it's non-denatured and low heat processed, it also retains some of the glutathione, which is the granddaddy antioxidant, which plays a huge role with detoxification, chelating toxic metals, um, helping with liver support. And then when it's non-denatured, you're going to get some of those immunoglobulins as well. So a lot of times just using our grass-fed whey is a great way to help kiddos with immune support, growth, development, all of those things pre-mentioned. And then we do get branched chain amino acids in their non-denatured forms, which is going to have less insulin influence. We'll get to that later as well. And um, our grass-fed whey is also free of, of course, lactose because there's no uh, sugars and no milk sugars in there and it's a, a dried powder. It's also free though of casein. It's 100% grass-fed whey. So it is casein-free and casein tends to be the more inflammatory protein particle in the dairy. Awesome. And then we'll make sure we link to our grass-fed way and we'll speak more to that later, I'm sure too. Um, So before we get into casein and the cons of dairy, let's talk about goat dairy versus cow dairy because I definitely hear from clients and I know in myself as well, I tend to tolerate goat better than I do cow. So what's that all about? Yeah. So, you know, it really comes down to a couple of things. One is based on the chains of carbohydrates. The milk sugars are less and shorter. So it tends to be a smaller molecule and has less lactose in general. So for people that have less of the lactase enzyme or are lactose intolerant, they tend to tolerate 
the goat milk much easier because of, again, the shorter chains um, and the less amount of lactose. Uh, now, goat's milk in general tends to be a little bit more mineral rich. It actually has significantly more potassium and um, it does have more calcium as well as more vitamin A because it does have a little bit more fat. Um, and within the fat, the fat globules are smaller. So um, goat's milk is generally not homogenized because it's first off smaller scale operation, um, but the fat globules tend to be easier to digest, so less GI distress as well. Um, and, and yet it is higher quality fat, so you get more of the fat soluble nutrients like the vitamin A and um, potentially D and K. Now, the big benefits overall um, are, again, like I said, scale of operation. So you're not going to find, I don't believe, maybe there are some, but there are not a lot of confined animal farms that do high volume goat milk production. It's usually going to be a little bit smaller. Um, and so with that, that means more quality, that means more ranging, um, that means less concern of the stuff I mentioned, like the blood and the pus and the, the bacteria um, influence. And so that's also a, a pro generally speaking, with the goat's milk over the cow's milk. Um, and then the biggest argument actually is going into the form of casein. And this is actually a new type of product in the cow's milk industry as well. So um, most people are actually sensitive to A1 casein um, and they lack the ability to digest this. So this is a type of a protein particle seen in cow's milk. And A1 casein can definitely be tied in a lot of studies to rhinitis, which is like runny nose um, and allergies in the ear, nose, and throat area. And also we can see hives, uh, abdominal cramping, and colic associated with that A1 casein. Now, um, we can see beyond the rhinitis and the GI distress, even chronic disease states like Crohn's and inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome, including um, with the... IBD, Crohn's, colitis, and then even some leaky gut. Um, and then within leaky gut, we can see acne, autoimmune disease, and skin issues like eczema. And again, this ties to a particular form of a protein in the kind of majority of cow's milk. There are cows like the Jersey cows and the Guernsey cows, um, which make a different form of casein and are free of the casein A1. The primary A1 producers are the Holsteins and the Fresnians, um, and these are kind of the bigger producers. So most dairy farm output from the state is going to have high amounts of that A1 casein. Whoa. <laughs> you and, just blew and, my mind on that. Like, and just, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you do see just like pure Jersey cow's milk or Guernsey cow's milk, they're actually now starting to mark their, their milks as like exclusively A2 casein producers because research is starting to show that there's none of these inflammatory influences with the A2 casein that there is with the A1. And so the, the kind of tying connection of this is that goat's milk only contains the A2 casein. So, you know, this makes it much more similar. And breast milk only consume, consume, uh, contains, excuse me, breast milk only has the A2. So really a lot of the negatives when we talk casein in general, we're actually really talking A1 casein over casein overall. And um, we've seen benefits of the A2 casein and none of the inflammatory distressing compounds that we see with the A1. 
Okay, that's super interesting that it's really based on the type of cow and probably the reason that dairy might be better tolerated if we're abroad or going with yeah. a you know small local farm that uses um, some of these other breeds of cows. Yep. So A2, good. A1, not good. (laughs) (laughs) So I just learned so much and and there's so much complexity in what seems to be, you know, a single ingredient food. For sure. I mean, even raw milk, right? If it's raw milk from an A1 cow or an A2 cow, you're looking at a totally different product, even the way you treat it. Raw goat's milk, which um, often goat's milk is recommended in like a Weston A price, uh, arena for baby formulas if we yes. can breastfeed, which is so interesting to me. And that's one of the big connections for uh-huh. sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think this A1 casein talk has started to create a little bit of lead in into the cons of dairy. So let's go there. Let's get into it. Um, let's talk about what happened to milk as far as ways that it's been manipulated from that raw form. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, in the States, it's all going to be pasteurized and homogenized, and it might be ultra heat pasteurized for shelf stability, which means you definitely don't have any living immunoglobulins in that product. Um, But, you know, the issue before even the processing to the milk is the crappy diet of pro-inflammatory corn and soy and other fattening compounds that may be non-edible otherwise to cows. And the issue with that is that puts the cow into a state of ketoacidosis. So some of you people that are familiar with the process of ketosis may have heard that term from your physician or someone that wasn't on board with your high fat, low carb diet that said, oh, watch out for ketoacidosis or, you know, the ketogenic diet is going to be distressing to your kidneys and put the body in an acidic state of pH. Well, ketoacidosis, remember, only occurs with super high blood sugar levels and suboptimal insulin. So you can't put yourself into ketoacidosis with a ketogenic diet. What happened to cows was, cows are ruminants, right? So they eat grasses and they are supposed to ferment these grasses into protein. And grasses are not very high carbohydrate food. But when we started to confine animals, give them less movement, which reduces their regulation of blood sugar, right? And then we also started force feeding them high refined carbohydrates, they would go into ketoacidosis, bloating, acidic tendencies, seizures, and die. Um, And so that's really where then we started to go into the prophylactic antibiotic um, administering in the dairy and meat industry to regulate this unnatural diet that we were force feeding these animals um, based on governmental subsidies of having an abundance of this crop and trying to fatten up the cows quicker. Um, and that's also paired with growth hormone. So, I mean, there's, I could go on about that, but <laughs> there's that, uh, you know, I mean, that's even before the milk comes out. Um, so the cow is generally in a distressed state. Um, it's generally very inflamed. It's generally going to be also preemptively provided antibiotics and growth hormone. And um, all of that can be very concerning. And then in the States, definitely, we go through that homogenization process and segregation of the fat percent from whole 2% in skim. And a big push of the skim milk um, is definitely going to be on the ability of the Dairy Farmers Association to make other products 
So if they can tell you to spend the same amount of money for watered down milk as a nutritionally dense whole milk, and they're going to kind of put the wool over your eyes and you're buying skim milk for your family because it's quote unquote healthier, they get to use that skimmed off fat and make three to five additional products. So that's a cha-ching win-win for that type of industry. Um, and so I think that that led to a lot of confusion and, and the more processed again, the more oxidative, the less nourishing. So as we strain the fat, we remove the fat soluble nutrients. As we increase the oxidative damage with more homogenization, more processing and filtering, we're creating more free radical particles. Ugh, skim milk is just horrifying to me. We used to have that in the house growing up. <laughs> yeah. It is not good stuff. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, the hormones that are given to conventionally yeah. raised cows. So the RBGH or RBST. Yes. So RBGH is a synthetic bovine hormone, um, and it's added to the feed or in an injectable to increase milk production. So uh, the Dairy Farming Association likes to say that it's virtually identical to untreated milk, so it's not labeled. Um, however, you can find milk that is labeled RBST or RBGH free. Um, so I definitely do recommend that. Um, I do have personal worry and concern about the link of these hormones on especially hormonal related cancers and looking at other countries like Canada and Europe where it's banned. I, I generally like to take a, a view on what other countries are doing and think, hmm, maybe our you know, platform with so much corporate um, and association buy-in to our laws may have an influence of why something is allowed here and not in other places. So I definitely recommend RBGH free. And if you're buying from a local producer, that should not be of concern, but definitely something to confirm. And then on the same topic of hormones, beyond just the added growth hormones that are given to the cows, what about the role of estrogen in dairy? Great question. And I think that this is one of the biggest controversies for sure. You know, there have been studies that have shown as far as estrogen circulating in individuals, about 60 to 80% of these estrogens coming from milk and dairy products in Western diets. So that's pretty wild, meaning that your sexual hormone balance could be regulated more exogenously, meaning externally by the foods you consume more than what your ovarian production is actually modifying or regulating. Is that crazy? 60 to 80%. That's um, so wild to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's so funny, you know, being in a functional medicine mindset when we talk about the use of like bioidentical hormones and such mm -hmm. and how there are OBGYNs that are like, oh, bioidentical progesterone cream, that's high risk. <laughs> and it's like, oh, but have your two to three cups of skim milk every yeah, day. Your milk is high risk. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, it is, it's, 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 it's definitely of a connection and the bioactivity of certain forms of estradiol versus oestrin may be low. Um, but there is a form in dairy products called oestrogen sulfate, and that's the main conjugate in milk. And that actually has a very high oral bioactivity. That's why this contributes to about 60 to 80% of the estrogenic influence. Um, and so there have been even some epidemiology studies that have found a strong relationship between milk and dairy products and high incidence of testicular and prostate cancers, 
both also, which tend to trend with estrogen dominance in the body with men. And that's why also when we look at men's hormones, we like to see a balanced estrogen to progesterone relationship. Um, so there's definitely been that in a correlation. Now, breast cancer and dairy, there's so much heavy leverage. Um, and I know even with working with patients and with my term of doing research and, and putting together that research study with MD Anderson on breast cancer, there's so much buy-in and a very difficult time to weigh in. But I think seeing it in men is enough to kind of push that a little bit forward into women. If we're talking about breast cancer and the risk of estrogen expression, and we do see in studies the influence on testicular and prostate, I think we could probably extend that and say that dairy is something to avoid if we're dealing with related hormonal risk. Um, so, you know, the, the impact of milk and dairy products on estrogens in human um, is, is definitely something that is quantifiable and, and should be more broadly discussed. So where would you put dairy um, on the yes list or the no list or the, the sometimes list for someone who has either active breast cancer or um, is in remission or is at elevated cancer risk? Yeah, so I would recommend that they limit, eliminate or limit all forms of cow's milk um, and, you know, Grass-fed whey may be of benefit definitely during active cancer treatment because of the risk of sarcopenia and muscle wasting, especially if going through chemotherapy. Um, you know, grass-fed whey, especially like ours, which is third-party assessed, and we know um, does not have high estrogenic properties, um, which is typically carried in the fat. Um, you know, so grass-fed whey may be of benefit during cancer treatment, um, and especially if from a clean source of hormone-free uh, cows as far as the recumbent growth hormone, um, because whey tends to be very low hormone containing. Um, and then ghee and, you know, raw aged cheeses or probiotic forms of dairy, I would say keeping at about twice a month or less. And it really depends on where you're at as an individual. Um, but I, I do not recommend it as a, a qualitative food. I recommend finding other forms of probiotics. So culturing and doing like, for instance, in the anti-anxiety diet book, we have a uh, homemade coconut yogurt, which is cultured. Um, and so using other forms of foods, I think is just safer and sound um, when you can mimic the health supporting compounds in other options. And then if you are to consume dairy, so for people that don't have direct hormone related cancer risk, but they want to, of course, not have estrogenic influence, it's really important to support your detox process. So, you know, in order to be cleared, estrogen requires cytochrome P450 in the liver to be optimized. And remember, there's a genetic connection to estrogen metabolism as well when we look at COMT, which is that genetic influence on regulating our catecholamines or our stress-responding chemicals. So, you know, a couple things that we can do as far as using dairy in the diet and protecting our bodies if we choose to so indulge or, or consume it for other health-supporting compounds um, we can incorporate liver detox support. So whether we're taking like, for instance, the super turmeric supplement, um, or I, I always ensure that if I'm doing a dairy day, like yesterday I was doing wine tasting. And so I had probably a good two ounces of aged cheese. I make sure that I double down on ultimate detox, which has calcium D-gluconerate that helps to detoxify estrogen influence in the body. Um, and you definitely want to stay on top of doing your 10 day detox. Um, which is also going to be supportive quarterly just to kind of keep 
the process of your liver and kidneys in cleaning up any byproducts. And this does help with the estrogenic metabolites in the body. Awesome. So the effects in terms of a hormone level um, will impact the body. It's just if you're prioritizing the estrogen detox or prioritizing reducing hormone activity, you'd want to be tight on avoidance. And then it's good to know that you can support your body's processing if there is some room for deviation as well. Yeah. I mean, or if you, again, if the cost to benefit ratio outweighs in favor, which absolutely for like kiddos dealing with asthma and allergies and uh, people dealing with leaky gut, we can absolutely see a cost to benefit ratio. Okay. Awesome. So I want to touch on beyond hormones, the fact that the anti-anxiety diet is actually dairy free. So I want to know what caused you to make that decision and you know, what the role of dairy is on mental health. I know we were going through some of the recipes and we're like, wow, we use a lot of grass-fed butter. <laughs> we're going to have to change this. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, it's something that I, I, I had to do because of the compelling research out there on the negative effects of the casein protein on having a, an influence on uh, the, the gut blood barrier, but also the blood brain barrier. And it's called caseomorphine. Um, and so very similar to the influence of gluten, we can see uh, addictive tendencies and mood disturbances associated with the casein. Now I haven't seen studies, it'd be interesting to see on if that was casein a1 or casein A2. You know, I don't think that we've seen that sophisticated level of, of breakdown of, of research. Um, but, you know, in general, again, you know, dairy has two primary irritants, so lactose and casein. And as we age, most people become lactose intolerant. And um, that's because our enzyme production in general reduces. And um, we also see with different ethnicities, less lactase enzyme. And so this creates a little bit more GI distress. So whether it's cup like discomfort, bloating, or irritation, all of this can trigger inflammation in the body. So that in itself was one reason because in my removed chapter of the anti-anxiety diet, I removed the top five pro-inflammatory foods. So lactose in itself can cause some inflammation in the body. Now, people that have digestive distress um, and have low stomach acid, have poor digestive function, um, and have GI inflammation or leaky gut will have even more reactivity adversely to casein. Um, and so again, if, if we're not breaking, if our stomach acid is too low, our enzyme activity is too low, and we have Swiss cheese going on in our intestinal lining, more of that casein is leaking through into the bloodstream. And then that can cross the blood-brain barrier, which can create this caseomorphine influence. And again, caseomorphine can have behavioral, cognitive, and mental health influence um, and has been shown in research to do so. Awesome. So for listeners, we'd be talking about um, the influence of DPP-4 in, that's unique in our digestive enzyme. Um, and this enzyme has the ability to break down lactose. So it has lactase, um, as well as hydrochloric acid to help regulate stomach acid and reduce reactivity to casein. And then the DPP-4 actually reduces the impact of that caseomorphine protein, as well as gluten, by the way. Right. So, I mean, I'm obsessed with our digestive enzyme. Yes. I think you and I are always like, it's direct stories. 
here it is. Every time we die yeah, now, every time we're out. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that's the, that's the best way to be proactive again. If, if you, yes, both by, as I prior mentioned with the estrogen, both by supporting your body's detox, you can better tolerate or have less downstream influence of the negative impacts of dairy, but preemptively by taking the digestate enzyme, you're going to have less inflammatory influence. You're going to break down that caseomorphin, so you will not have that blood-brain barrier influence. You will stimulate your digestive juices, so the casein itself can't act even inflammatory as much, and you have the lactase for the lactose. So that's literally one of the best ways to ensure, um, especially if you're having a little bit higher dairy focus, having double down on those enzymes can be one of the best ways to indulge and get the health-supporting probiotics and protein-rich compounds without the distressing compounds. Yes, I love that stuff for sure. Um, so let's get into talking about the influence in the keto community as well as in metabolic disease. So I want to address dairy and insulin and its effects on blood sugar as well. I know we had a listener question, so hopefully you're listening out there um, to speak to the effects on insulin. Yeah. So, you know, dairy does elicit significant insulin response and um, there actually has not shown an influence of like the whole fat in whole milk to blunt it. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're looking at what is insulinogenic about dairy. Um, we see that cream and butter, which are higher fat, um, not having as much of an influence on the insulin itself, which generally speaking, the ketogenic community is predominantly consuming those things. Um, but we do see all kinds of milk, yogurt, cottage cheese, um, and then definitely concentrations of casein, um, and then even some whey influence definitely on the insulin expression in the body. So there was actually a study looking in 2004 Journal of Clinical Nutrition um, that compared milk, a glass of milk, to be more insulinogenic than white bread, um, less than whey protein. Um, and uh, that's a really dynamic thing. So we think of white bread, though, as the kind of gold standard of what ties glycemic index and glycemic load when we're doing research on what is a high glycemic index food or a low glycemic index food. Um, and so maybe it didn't have as much of a glycemic index, but it had higher insulin activity. So it's definitely something uh, to, to look a little bit deeper into. Whoa. And that was even with full fat milk? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. So do you think it's based on the lactose or milk sugars? Is it the protein? What's the mechanism here? Yeah. And, and so I have found from kind of digging deeper into it that it's really a lot of the amino acids that are potent stimulators of insulin release, which, which makes sense because if you think about it, we've talked about the, some of the positives of especially the proteins in dairy of being anabolic, right? Helping with growth helping with muscle maintenance. Um, and so insulin, remember, is an anabolic hormone. It's a storage hormone. So we've seen that branch chain amino acids, even specifically, are more insulinogenic or insulin producing than other types of amino acids. Um, and we've seen that um, the hydrosylates of proteins. So the more processed these amino acids are, they stimulate a higher insulin secretion. 
um, than an intact protein does, of course. Um, and that's probably because there's a more rapid increase in the postprandial plasma amino acid concentrate. So if you take, for instance, a you know grass-fed, non-denatured whey protein, you will have more insulin response than you would with, again, butter or ghee or um, you know even a high-fat uh, full cream. But if you take then that grass-fed, non-denatured whey and you denature it and you turn it into a whey protein isolate, you're going to get a substantially higher influence of insulin release. And then you take that whey isolate and you make a branched chain amino acid powder, you're going to get an even higher insulin release. And I think that that's an important thing to call out um, because a lot of people are taking BCAAs um, as they're doing some exercise or bulking, and then they're not getting good success in their ketone production or their ketogenic diet. Okay, so really the more processed it sounds like, the more expression in terms of insulin effect we're going to get. Yes, and it is tied, as we've seen in research studies, to the protein itself, um, not so much the lactose milk sugars, which are, are not very substantial. So interesting. It's not what I would have expected, but that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. And again, it's that connecting the dots that insulin is anabolic. So, you know, for someone with insulin resistance, I do not, and I'm talking like a, a diabetic that is dealing with substantial insulin re resistance, I would definitely consider pulling dairy out completely from the diet. Um, and I would also say that they would not be a good fit even for like our grass-fed whey protein powder, which has a lot of health-supporting compounds, it'd be much better for something that doesn't evoke that. Now, I don't think in general now that what I've learned about branched-chain amino acids, that a highly insulin-resistant individual should be doing any protein powder with that being said, because they're all going to have amino acids in a pretty isolated form, and that includes collagen as well. Mm, interesting. Okay. So I think a great way to sum up today's talk. I think that's a great way to sum up today's talk on dairy. So dairy has some, some great health redeeming properties. Um, and that comes down to quality of source, how the dairy is processed. And maybe it also depends on if you're taking your digestate and your ultimate detox formulas religiously. <laughs> For sure. I mean, it's always about weighing out the cost to benefit ratio. And, you know, I think that each of us in this you know, process has, we're constantly, and that's one of my favorite mantras of my Naturally Nourished brand is, you know, redefine your relationship with food. And I think it's a constant dance and transition. I mean, I think I used to personally eat Greek yogurt every single day. I really did, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like Greek yogurt and raspberries. And, um, you know, you'll even see as our materials and products continue to evolve um, from the Naturally Nourished Cookbook, which has dairy-free coding in the index. And so you can definitely find a lot of dairy-free options. But like, as you mentioned with the blog, to even things of finding alternatives. And with that being said, I think that dairy has its place. I think it's been consumed for thousands of years safely and that it provides a abundance of immune supporting compounds that cannot be mimicked in nature with any other food. Um, so, you know, it, it's that fine line of where you are in your toleration, how you can enhance your body's tolerance by using 
I would recommend our digestate enzyme because that's going to both help again with the lactose and the casein with that specific DPP-4 for the casein morphine. And then how you support your body's detox process to not have the residual hormone influence. Awesome. And then let's close out just with a couple of our favorite, let's do a couple of dairy-filled recipes and then maybe a couple of dairy-free options I'll suggest as well for those of us that don't tolerate dairy as well. Yeah. So my favorite, which is so uh, fantastic to make at parties and gatherings, is probably the Greek yogurt cheesecake bars um, in the Naturally Nourished Cookbook. So that's in our indulgence chapter, and it is a great kind of transitional recipe. Um, If you're going from a uh, diet into more clean eating and transitioning to gluten-free, um, it's just a really good mouthfeel and a really nice texture. Um, another one I love on the blog is our yogurt panna cotta with that blueberry reduction. <laughs> uh, yeah, really fantastic way to bring gelatin into the diet as well. Really fantastic mouthfeel and um, taste. And then it does have those probiotics in there. And then our tropical bliss smoothie in the uh, naturally nourished cookbook as well, um, which is a green smoothie, incorporates dairy as a tangy delivery of both probiotics and protein. Awesome. And then I'm going to recommend on the the dairy free or maybe the lower dairy side. Um, we just posted recently a berry rooibos or rooibos. I always forget how to say that type of tea. I say rooibos. I don't know. Okay. Rooibos. Um, it's a South African tea, but it uses that as a base for a smoothie bowl. Um, so it's thick and creamy with the addition of some coconut chunks but totally dairy-free, so that would be an awesome option. Um, I'm also thinking the maca cacao fat bombs. That's a great option for those doing keto who want to be dairy-free, so it uses cacao butter instead of using um, something like butter in there. Um, And then if we're kind of dipping our toe into dairy, I would say starting with the cauliflower pizza crust um, because it has goat cheese in there, and you can actually substitute all of the cheese for like a goat or sheep's milk form even, which we didn't really address sheep's milk today, but um, that might be a better tolerated option. And you could sub both the cheese in the crust. Um, I think there's parm added in addition to goat cheese. And I tend to tolerate parm and those harder cheeses just fine. And then you could choose like a really nice goat cheese to also top with. So that would be my like bridge into dairy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I would like to mention for those of you that are like, well, what do I do? <laughs> the first thing I would recommend, <laughs> yeah, the first thing I recommend doing, and, and actually my anti-anxiety diet book does this, we eliminate dairy for 12 weeks in all ways, shapes, and forms with the exception of at week seven. So six weeks of everything out and at week seven, potentiality of either playing with grass-fed whey or ghee. Um, as the the less offenders, if you will. Um, And that's optional. You could keep all forms of dairy out for 12 weeks. And what I always recommend, you know, elimination diet is gold standard. So if you're someone that's doing this for keto and you want to know if you're having an insulinogenic or insulin influence from, from these foods, you could eliminate for at least six weeks to start. And then you could switch up, you know, your keto coffee and bring back in that grass-fed butter or ghee in addition to the coconut milk. And that'd be the first kind of thing. Again, ghee would be better than the grass-fed 
butter, which is not going to have the casein and the lactose and the ghee. Um, so you could play with ghee at week seven and then just kind of keep tracking and monitoring your body. When we do an elimination diet, we want to be at least off everything for six weeks and then strategically three days in a row, increasing the portion per day to see if there is a decline. So you could watch your weight on the scale. You could watch other markers of inflammation, like in your joints, your GI tract, your bowel regularity, or if you're using a blood meter, you could check your ketone output. And then, you know, the following week, if you feel like ghee was fine, the following week, you might test grass-fed whey. Then the following week, you might test some cheeses in moderation. And you might find that you have a sweet spot where you can have dairy twice a week and feel indulged and still see optimal outcomes in your body on an anti-inflammatory benefit. So it's really just kind of choosing where it comes for you and then how your body responds. Yes. Like so many things that we talk about on this podcast, it's not a one size fits all approach. You really have to play with it and see what's going to work for you. Um, and then if you're someone who likes to have more data, you might consider running our MRT panel, yes. which looks at 170 different foods and it's what five or six different forms of dairy. I think it's six, yeah. um, you know, from your cow's milk to your yogurt, to your harder versus softer cheese. And it looks at the inflammatory response of your body. So that would give you more of a kind of GPS of how to navigate the dairy, the dairy. but there's so many other nuances of enzyme activity and, and so yeah. many other things. So that's just a tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then you can be again, preemptive with the digestate enzyme and proactive on the, on the downstream effect on the metabolism with the ultimate detox. So we'll be sure to put links to those yes. products as well. And just kind of in summary, I, I want to just harp on the benefits of raw milk and the benefits of colostrum as far as improving immunity, helping with skin, allergies, asthma, growth, development, and reducing the risk for nutritional deficiency, especially in our pediatric population that needs support with fat-soluble compounds and minerals. Um, and then, you know, taking that to the next level to fermenting them into raw aged cheeses, yogurt and kefir, processing into grass fed butter and further cleaning into ghee can all be reasonable approaches. It's a choose your own adventure and where you wanna start. So I hope that today's episode was helpful. Um, if you have any uh, questions, y'all can also follow up on the podcast tab at AllieMillerRD.com. You can head over to the shop if you have yet to experience our digested enzyme, I think that today's episode is a compelling way of, of tipping your toe into that and um, maybe even the ultimate detox uh, to help your liver and the metabolism of the estrogenic influences of this food if you choose to consume it. Um, thanks again for listening and head on over to iTunes for a five-star review with a couple sentences of love and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.